Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. First up, the Socceroos have safely progressed through the Asian Cup round of 16 in Qatar and are one of the form sides going into the quarterfinals, commencing on Friday night, our time. As we record, their opponent isn't decided, but it will be either South Korea or Saudi Arabia who play in the early hours of Wednesday morning, our time. Whichever team wins, while it will be a tough assignment, the FIFA rankings and form in the tournament suggest Graham Arnold's men have nothing to fear. South Korea ranked 23 to our 25 and Saudi 56. So far in the tournament, South Korea drew with both Malaysia and Jordan and finished second in their group behind Bahrain. Meanwhile, Saudi topped a relatively weak group, winning twice against Kyrgyzstan, who played with 10 men for most of the second half and a final nil-all draw against Thailand. To see what he makes of it all, one of our favourite analysts, Captain Socceroo himself, Paul Wade, will join us. Then in one of the biggest shocks to break in football in recent times, Jurgen Klopp has announced it will be his last season at Liverpool. While he may not have had the longevity of Sir Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger, most would agree that he sits comfortably in their company as one of the great managers of the modern era. At Anfield, if they created a Mount Rushmore of managerial greats, there would be likely five faces. Their longest-serving manager who delivered the club's first title in 1901, Tom Watson, alongside Bob Paisley, Bill Shankly, Kenny Dalglish, and, of course, Klopp, to reflect on his legacy and who might be the next in line. We'll look forward to talking with the former Red and now top pundit Stephen Warnock, and we'll wrap up with all the AFCON news in World Cup corner. Edge, where do we start? I mean, were you surprised? I mean, we're hearing that the story about Klopp was starting to leak um, on social media, and that was one of the reasons why the club got out ahead of it. But uh, was that the the biggest story of the week for you, or uh, was uh, football on the park, Asian Cup, AFCON style, uh, what caught your attention? Well, obviously, I'm engrossed in the Asian Cup, Rob. I've been over there, so I understand what's going on. But, um, yeah, Klopp was big news. Obviously, he's closer to the end than the start, wasn't he, in his career at Liverpool. But uh, I guess the timing of it was a bit of a surprise. Um, But he's just such a good person and been so successful that there's going to be a a feeling of discontent uh, with Liverpool fans about it because he's going to be sorely missed. And whoever follows in his uh, footsteps has got big shoes to fill, no doubt about that. But, uh, Rob, it's been a couple of weeks since I've been on the program and a lot's happened in the APL. I'm going to talk in stoppage time about Mm. the governance and just sort of this ongoing PR crisis with a silence from head office. It's really got up my goat. Um, Mm. But I'll save that for stoppage time. But what about the Socceroos, Rob? You're right to mention it off the top of the the program. Um, Only... One goal we've conceded in four games. We seem to be sailing through the tournament. But why are so many soccer fans, Rob, Socceroos fans, why are they so critical of Graham Arnold? I mean, all you can do is win games, surely. Well, look, I'm going to let Willem pick it up from here. But um, after the World Cup, for me, he can do no wrong. We qualified against the odds against Peru, uh, had a massive tournament in the World Cup. He was named the the FIFA uh, manager of the tournament. He can't do any more than, than that for me. What about you, Willem? Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty bullish on them, to be honest. Um, they have defeated Indonesia 4-0. As you say, Rob, it's going to be either the Korea Republic or Saudi Arabia in the early hours of Saturday morning Australian time. Neither of those sides are 
you know, two crash hot South Korea uh, really sort of battled through the uh, the group stages despite having two of the best players at the tournament in uh, in Lee Kang In and Son Hyung Min running around. So yeah, perhaps still not the performance from Australia some had hoped for, uh, but we did take a, a two 0 lead into the break and then a couple of late goals uh, managed to beef up the scoreline. Another back heel for a run of Nathaniel Atkinson hangs it up. Good save, Ari, and the follow up is in by Craig Goodwin and that will do it for the Socceroos. Goodwin's delivery and it's a fourth. Harry Suter got the final touch. An exclamation mark at the end of a pretty indifferent display by the Socceroos. So South Korea uh, and Saudi meet on Tuesday. Australia uh, will have more than two full days extra rest. So let's hope that those two sides edge, uh, slog it out and go to extra time. We'll chat to Paul Wade shortly, but I guess the only other hard news we need to address before that is that Gethin Jones uh, went straight to hospital for a scan on uh, a groin injury. And you were saying off air, Edge, that you reckon that was his best performance in uh, the green and gold thus far. He's obviously Graham Arnold's first pick right back, and that'll be a bit of a blow. Uh, means Nathaniel Atkinson's obviously um, going to be his replacement. He did quite well when he came on. I thought the other match that Nathaniel played, he, uh, he didn't uh, do so well. So, um, yeah, look, but that's why he choose two, as um, we'll find out of Paul Wade, and no doubt he'll say that's why he choose two players for each position. Uh, Gethin Jones, he'll be a bit missed. I think he's made a good start to his career with the Socceroos. Maybe that falls into uh, into line with the Graham Arnold criticism because if you jump on soccer Twitter, it has been ablaze with Gethin Jones' hate. Uh, so yeah, we'll have to pick through that with Wadey as well. Tajikistan have also booked their place in the quarters after knocking out the more fancied UAE 5-3 on penalties after a one-all draw. The Tajiks held their lead until the 91st minute when an equaliser looked likely to end their dream tournament debut, but they regrouped the better uh, and won the shootout courtesy of keeper Rustum Yatimov uh, and the defining save. So they're going to meet the winner of Iraq and Jordan. Uh, that'll be decided late on Monday evening Australian time. So by the time you hear this, you will most likely know uh, who that will be. But Edge, a, a word on the Tajiks and their uh, their manager, Um who uh, Peter Sergev on the uh, on the touchline? This is a, a dream debut. Oh, he's a star. He's the most energetic and charismatic manager at the tournament. He's been uh, every time the Tajik media come down to talk to him at training, he he, he leads them in chants and he says they don't have enough emotion that they should be completely one sided in their coverage. He's an absolute superstar. This guy. He's um, made a huge impact of the statement and uh, well done to the Tajiks and oh gee, the UAE. I mean, Asian Cup in their neck of the woods. I know it's in Qatar, but it's almost a home home event for them and they will be gutted. Um, they're at the crossroads, that uh, football program at the UAE. They pump in enormous amounts of money, yet um, they always seem to be overshadowed by their neighbours, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. So UAE, back to the drawing board. I want to bring in uh, Derek Dyson for the first time. Jurgen Klopp is the big news of the week internationally, and we're going to have a stack of that throughout the program with Stephen Warnock. But Derek, he said he's running out of energy after nine years in the job. His seven trophies at the club are headlined by their sixth European crown, the Champions League of 2019, and their drought-breaking maiden Premier League title of 2019-20. He could add a further three trophies this season before his time is out. But... um, you know, 
very, very quickly after that news had broken, the uh, the wheels begin to spin as to what this will mean for the football world going forward. So Xavi Alonso leads the markets as his replacement. He's top of the Bundesliga at the minute with Bayer Leverkusen. Xavi Hernandez, his former Barcelona teammate, has announced he's finishing up at Barca. Uh, could be, could he be in the running? And not to throw three questions at you at once, but parallels are then also drawn with, uh, with Klopp and the Germany job, which is going to be vacant uh, post-Euros. Yeah, I'm sure we'll ask Stephen Warnock uh, about all of that, past, present and future. I, I want to say that I did call this last week because we were talking about Xavi Alonso and stoppage time, I think, and I did say that he would be linked to all the major jobs now going forward. I didn't think that it would happen quite so soon. And, of course, like everyone else, when the uh, the news broke, I was stunned. And then my next response was to try and get the news onto our WhatsApp feed before Rob did so I could win that little win that little battle. But... Um, yeah, look, obviously the, the writing has been on the walls, I think. I think he has been talking about uh, his future. We were, I was even comparing some photos of him the day that he took the job, uh, a fresh-faced uh, manager uh, with his with his hair in, uh, in the, the colour, <laughs> you know, uh, not looking grey at all. And then you fast forward now and he's got the stubble, uh, uh, the hair's gone grey, the worry lines are there. He's only been there for eight or nine years. The teeth are still there, of course. They're still glowing and, and effervescent. Yeah, yeah, I mean, quite, the, yeah. the glasses are gone, though. The, and the, but the, the glasses have gone. But, yeah, that job has, has, has aged him. And, look, it is just a big job. And when you're competing in the Premier League for titles with the pressure that managing Liverpool, you'll always be under. And the fact that you've got teams like Man City who are going to drop very few points in a season, you had navigating the club through COVID. Uh, look, I think he can look back uh, rightly proud of this team that he's built, the team that he's underway building the next generation. And yes, I think in Rob's uh, Ram- Ram- Mount Rushmore, I think uh, Klopp will, will be there too, no doubt about it. How are you feeling, Roberto? You were stoic in the group chat. You were dropping Ange Postacoglu gifts and, you know, the old jokes here and there. I think Edge was pushing for the Hodgesaurus, but you knocked that one firmly on the head. But how do you feel? You've you've loved the Klopp journey over the last nine years in the past uh, eight or nine years doing this show. It's sort of tied in and you've, uh, you've mm. spoken about him most weeks. So how do you feel? It is the end of an era. It, it, it's hard to um, to speak on behalf of you know the the, the broader Liverpool support base, uh, I guess you just speak on, of your own experience. And and for me, um, he was just the all rounder. I know if I get the chance, I want to ask Stephen this question: that uh, George Sefton, the ground announcer, fifty years on uh, at Anfield, we uh, we got to know George uh, really well over a period of time on the podcast. And and I, I remember him telling me at Anfield uh, that night that I was at that Champions League uh, match back in 2018 that um, that one of the, the very first things that Jurgen Klopp did um, was to walk around the entire stadium and, and, and personally say hello to everyone. And when he walked up to George, George put his hand out and went to introduce himself and, and Jurgen just chuckled. He said, you don't need to introduce yourself to me, George. You're the most famous ground announcer in the world. It's a pleasure to meet you. And, uh, and that to me suggested that he knew all about uh, uh, the the culture that um, that he needed to really tap into. And I was reading an article on the Times, um, Martin Samuel, saying that the night that he got the job, that he went down to a bar and and, and had a beer um, in uh, downtown Liverpool and, and just got to know some locals. So, uh, you know, how do I feel? Um, I feel that I was privileged to really be involved in the middle of uh, of this club. Um, 
him in the middle of the club, but, you know, commenting on it, watching, seeing all the success during a golden period. And I'm pleased to, to end uh, my observation by saying that, that he gets to walk out on his own terms and didn't get sacked. So that's, I think, a great thing because there was a suggestion um, uh, well, in the last 12 months or so, Edge, that, um, that he, uh, you know, he might have uh, been, you know, losing his, uh, his mojo. Quick one for Derek. Um, it, it would be mighty, mighty amazing if uh, Klopp went to uh, to Germany, wouldn't it? Be an incredible, incredible storyline in his career if he got to um, head up the the national team. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's the right way to go about it, isn't it? I mean, he's you know he's had an amazing career in in club football. He obviously started off at lowly, lowly Mainz uh, back in the day. Obviously, caught the attention of. Dortmund took them as far as they could go, then then took the Liverpool job. And, you know, where does he go from here? Like he says that he doesn't have it, the heart to do it anymore. Well, you know, that kind of entails to me that you don't then jump into another, you know, high-powered side. He won't manage another Premier League club by the sounds of it. Does he really want to get involved in um, Barcelona and, and, and Real Madrid and those kinds of teams? I'm sure they'll be, I'm sure they'll be keen. I'm sure that Barcelona will have Klopp's number on speed dial and try and try and change his mind but I'm not trying to say that Germany is a step down far far from it will be the, one of the greatest honors of his life but he doesn't have to do day in day out, day out football he can focus on clutches of games he can go to plenty of matches he can put all of his knowledge and experience back into uh, his country uh, and his national team so for me that would be um, the perfect fit and uh, and of course the timing will just be will just be everything uh, for Germany, won't it, Edge? Well, Derek, I'll just very briefly pass a question on to you and I'll credit Kieran Maguire from our friend uh, the, at the Price of Football podcast, but what if uh, Gareth Southgate leaves uh, after the Euros? Would he be in the frame to, to coach England? I suppose so. Uh, wouldn't be the most unusual the, the most unusual thing. I, I, I Clearly, I, I think he'd want the, he'd want the, he'd want the, the, the Germany job first and no doubt you know there's there's literally no doubt that um there'd be some back channeling uh going on there so no doubt there's been some intimations indications uh employing Jürgen Klopp by the FA would would be a step in a different direction I mean obviously a direction that's been been before but uh they they've they're all about this uh you know St George's system Bringing bringing the players through and bringing the management talent through, I, I think England will look internally again, uh, only to a point from within. Um, but yeah, England could do worse than a point. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, but um, yeah, I, I probably think if he's going to take an international job, it's that that Germany one will be the one he wants. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Still time to book your trip to Tashkent to see the Matildas in the first leg of their Olympic qualifier against Uzbekistan. And I note on the website, Edge, we've already got a couple of those restaurants booked in. So ggatravel.com.au if you want to be part of that tour and that feed. Still a stack of Matildas in action in the English Women's Super League. Caitlin Ford slid one home for Arsenal as they defeated Liverpool 2-0. While Katrina Gorey helped West Ham to a much-needed three points as they looked to climb away from the relegation zone to Women's Champions League action uh, throughout the week. Match day five of six, this is. Claire Wheeler started for PSG in their 3-1 win over Ajax to all but seal progression. And Ellie Carpenter played 90 minutes for Lyon as they hammered St. Poulton of Austria 7-0. Uh, we've been covering Tom Glover's run with Middlesbrough in the AFL Cup, so it's only fair that we see it to its grisly end. 6-1 it was 
uh, to Chelsea in the second leg. Not pretty viewing, Rob. Uh, and to close, uh, just some uh, some domestic news. Football Australia uh, looking to identify another two to four clubs for that national second division uh, to join the eight that were named last November. Uh, we know this is a, a multi-phase system, so those that were part of that first phase are now, but not in the second, are now coming into the second. And um, yeah, the, the main talking point from that was that all of those first eight clubs were from Vic and New South Wales. So you'd expect now, Rob, uh, to broaden out. Yeah, that was the question I was about to ask, Edge. Which of those clubs, I mean, we're talking Brisbane Strikers, Adelaide United, uh, uh, one of the, the bigger Perth clubs, um, even Tassie, Canberra. Yeah, who, who would your, say, top two selections from, from that group be? Well, there's got to be a team out of Brisbane. There's got to be a team out of um, South Australia. Um, I think Perth's market's not big enough, but you know, then maybe Tasmania. But, you know, there's also some big clubs in New South Wales and Victoria that are waiting in the wings. Mm -hmm. Melbourne Knights and Heidelberg, for example. Okay. Excellent. All right, we'll find out and we'll, uh, we'll cover it all on the show. All right, well done, guys. I'm going to uh, sit on the bench with uh, Derek while we listen to you chat to our good mate, uh, Captain Soccer himself, Paul Wade. Um, if uh, there ever was a more enthusiastic supporter of uh, of the green and gold, I don't know who it would be. Um, the great man is, uh, is a good friend of the show and I'm sure he'll give us uh, some excellent analysis on the Asian Cup. That's all next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. The Socceroos remain in the hunt for a second Asian Cup crown. We'll meet either South Korea or Saudi Arabia in a quarterfinal this weekend. Undefeated, three clean sheets from four and four goals against Indonesia. But still questions remain over selection and style in some quarters. To help us work through it, it's always great to be joined by former Socceroos captain and a great supporter of our show, Paul Wade. G'day to you, Wadey. I'm a great supporter indeed of your show. You do a wonderful job. Hopefully, hopefully, I can make sense. <laughs> no, never never an issue. 4-0 over Indonesia, Wadey, and comfortable on the scoreline, but Arnie's still fighting fires in the press to an extent. Lower than normal shots on target has now become uh, a point of contention amongst some, but you can't deny the results. So what have you made of the tournament thus far? Oh, thus far? Oh, it, it frustrates me because I want to play, I want to see good football, attacking football, fast football, skillful football, but I also want three points. And all the way through this, I've uh, been talking to a number of people and we've agreed that there are seven games if you're going to win this. You can't play at 100 miles an hour all the time. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example of not playing at 100 miles an hour. Um, the goal that uh, Jackson Irvine scored, the deflection at the near post, he took three touches from the moment he won that ball back. He touched the ball three times to belt it in the back of the net through a deflection. Before that, we played 32 passes. 32 passes from the halfway line to, I don't know, 10 yards closer to the attacking goal. I mean, that is the most frustrating thing. And the thing is, when we actually started or the end of that uh, series, we, we were three on three and we stopped. I think it was Riley McGree stopped, turned and passed it back. So to give you an example of how I've seen it, that sort of sums it up for me. Do you know what I mean? But again, I keep calming myself down by saying, Wadey, there are seven games here. Don't be silly. So uh, that's the best way I can put it, in a nutshell, anyway. 
And one thing that might benefit us as we look towards our toughest opponent in either the Korea Republic or Saudi Arabia thus far is that we are going to have more than 48 hours additional rest over whichever one of them that does prove to be. So the boys will be able to sit back and watch the match. The recovery will already be out of the way. They'll already be well into to preparation. So at a major tournament, as we do look to work throughout or, or through seven games, how much of a, an advantage or not do you think that is? No, I don't think it's an advantage at all, to tell you the truth. Because you forget about the fact that you've had 24 hours extra time when you walk onto that park. There'll be players that are tired. There'll be players that are, haven't slept well or are not feeling well. There are so many elements that go into a game of football. And one of the last ones you think about is we've got 24 hours more rest than they have. Um, it's not an advantage. It is an advantage being able to watch them live, um, uninterrupted, Just just get... Uh, they'll obviously have people at the ground because so often when you're watching a game on the TV, all you see is the ball. Yeah, we know where the ball is and we know who's got the ball and who's closing the ball down, but what about the run that's been made 50 yards away? Um, what about the defender not being or being dragged over too far? That's the sort of thing that I want to see because when I'm playing a football team, I want to see where their weaknesses are and if they're fullbacks or, yeah, I'm just making things up now. If the fullbacks are not uh, doing the right thing, okay, well, in a couple of days' time, I'll try and exploit that. So, yeah, the last thing you're going to think about, as I say, is that you've got 24 hours extra sleep. That's not going to work. Wadey, um, Arnie seems to be a little bit um, uh, sensitive to some of the reporting, and I know we, we shouldn't believe everything we see, we read and uh, engage with on Twitter, but at Socceroos fans, or Soccer Twitter seems to be, uh, not entirely happy with the style of performance. Do you think Arnie should be sensitive to that? Or at the end of the day, tournament football is all about results, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And honestly, one thing, Arnie hates the media. I mean, he hates standing in front of a camera. He hates doing these crappy interviews with newspapers. But I know he's got to do it. He knows he's got to do it. Uh, and that's why he comes across so bland. It's like, it's not him. Do you know what I mean? So when he gets all these so-called experts who've never kicked a ball in their life, and if they had, they couldn't kick it accurately, telling him how to do his job, it's very difficult to show any sort of enthusiasm at all. Um, I He did enjoy it after a while with Sydney FC because he started to think, right, what do I want to tell the uh, the media? Not what they're trying to get out of me. I'll tell you what. But he's come to a point, I figure, in that he doesn't care anymore. He's tired of that sort of crap. He just wants to have a coaching job. And let's just talk about a couple of the injuries that uh, the squad sustained through the tournament. It looks like Gethin Jones, um, with that substitution, that groin injury, it looked it looked pretty bad. Um, you'd have to say that he's unlikely to play any more part in the tournament at right back. Is Nathaniel Atkinson? Obviously, Gethin Jones was appeared to be the first picked right back. Nathaniel Atkinson, you know, he's got a bit of experience now, but uh, how do you see his uh, his adaptability and suitability going forward for the rest of the tournament? Well, I think Arnie, obviously, like a, a lot of coaches, they picked two players for the one position. And uh, when Nathaniel came on, I thought he did a terrific job. He is a very fit, powerful boy. 
And uh, when he gets the ball, I think he's just as enthusiastic going forward as anybody else, whether you're playing in midfield or up front. He wants to get to that byline to cross the ball. So I don't see that as a big problem. It's just, uh, I mean, you've got to start somebody, don't you? And there's got to be a little bit of cohesion. That's why you keep picking the same players. But if you have to re- you know, just replace someone, it's no big deal because they've been training for however long. They know the routine. Um, it's just the face that's different. No problem at all. And uh, the first big striker, Mitch Duke, obviously he's got a hamstring injury. There's um, a little bit of doubt over whether he'll be ready for the next match. But obviously Cassini Yengi got an opportunity and Bruno Fornaroli started the match against Indonesia. If Duke can't play, are you going with Yengi or Fornaroli? They're all different types of number nines, aren't they? <laughs> they are. Yeah, I guess it's you've got to think about the opposition. Um, that's, a, that's a key especially when you've got a number nine there. You're going to get mobility out of Duke. We all know that. Um, we, you know you're going to get somebody who loves the ball into feet with Fornaroli. If I, if I was a, a, the coach, I would say Fornaroli, but what I would demand from everybody is you play that ball to him as soon as you can because the number of runs that he made and didn't get the ball... He's one of the most gifted footballers in that squad. And we're messing around with the ball on the halfway line. You don't have to play at 100 mile an hour, but make sure you get that ball to Fornaroli and do his stuff on the edge of the 18-yard box. Whatever it takes, give him the ball. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And um, and the play that I think is really important to the Socceroos is Craig Goodwin. He's obviously managing a knee complaint at the moment uh, off the substitute bench. He made an impact. Um, what have you made of um, Jordan Boss, who's got an opportunity when Craig couldn't play in the uh, the left wing position? Um, what are your thoughts on on Jordan and Craig's importance to the team? Yeah, I, honestly, I think we've got a good stable of players who want to beat the player in front of them and they've got the engines to do it and get back. And I think Geordie Boss is one of those players. You know, they've Everyone was saying, oh, he should have been playing a little bit further back or up front like he does for his club. There's all sorts of conjecture there, but uh, he's, got the, he's got the area of the park to work in and he knows it because he plays it week in, week out. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited because we've got a, another Matthew Leckie, you know, somebody, uh, another Brett Emerton, if you want to go back that far. Somebody who has uh, a real keenness and a, an ability they have the engines to do it. Paul, the final selection quandary through the first couple of games of the tournament does look to have sort of settled down a little bit, and that is the midfield. For the second successive game, Arnie started uh, Bacchus behind Irvine and, and McGree, or, you know, it's a little bit more sort of layered than a, a flat midfield three, but for the, you know, for the sake of the argument, it, it is a midfield three. Um, and that comes at the expense of, of Metcalf and O'Neill. Do you think that those three are the way to go, or might we see a change as we, as we start looking? looking towards some more more creative sides in, in their own respective midfields. Yeah, I think it's important to keep the ball in midfield. And, and Bacchus and Irvine can do that with, uh, with ease. You know, they never seem to be uh, panicking. But, yeah, Metcalf coming on. The danger with all of this, especially playing with a number of people in the midfield, um, is that you end up not knowing who's doing what job. 
I would rather play 4-4-2 because being one of the two players in the middle, I know it's not complicated. Do you know what I mean? I'm a very simple man. I want to know that my midfield, you, you guys there, I want to know where you are. I don't have to look. Now, um, is Bonaroli going to know he's not Metcalf? Too confusing. Do you know what I mean? Keep it simple, stupid. And sometimes having those two gifted footballers in the middle but playing killer passes, that's what I'd like to see. But then again, I'm not Arnie. And Paul, just to follow on, we've got you on, just moving away from the Socceroos, we've sat here a little bit dismayed over the past couple of weeks off the back of the news of the APL's uh, job cuts and the way that what was meant to be a bright, shining new era for the domestic game uh, looks to have taken you know, a bit, of a, a bit of a turn for the worst. I'm not sure how closely you followed the, the ins and outs of, of the domestic game from an administrative point of view, and maybe it's because we sort of sit here on the media side of things that it, it hits us a little bit harder, but you are a, a statesman of the game in this country. You've, you know, you've captained the national team, for goodness sake. Do you, do you feel these things? Do you get dismayed, or has it been sort of so many crises along, or crises along the way that uh, the game, you know, you, you see the good in it, that it will continue to, to replenish itself? How do you, how do you feel yeah. sort of broadly as we sit here now? Yeah, it goes up and down, doesn't it? When it first started the A-leg, how good were the crowds? Sydney FC versus Melbourne Victory, and you couldn't get a ticket. And then it died a little bit. And I saw the, the game on the weekend, despite the riot that happened outside, the crowd there. And, you know, it wasn't full, but there was a crowd with atmosphere and again. And so things like that lift me. But, you know, as far as the admin go, as I say, I'm as thick as two short planks. But one thing that does concern me and I, I was hoping that when the all the responsibility put back on the clubs to run the competition I thought it was going to be great but it seems to have gone backwards I, I honestly it took me ages to find out where I could get information about every A-League game and highlights and stories and so if I'm struggling what's the guy whose kid plays for West Pennant Hills in Sydney how's he going to find that stuff for his son Probably, uh, as I say, I'm as thick as two short planks, but it's just that. Come on, world. Um, yeah, you've Australian Open finished. There's a few more tests to go, but the A-League is on. And it's live and it's worth watching. I don't, I don't feel that. I don't hear it. I don't see it. Paul, your, your passion and your enthusiasm for the game is, um, is unbridled and it's always magnificent to have you on. So we will continue to um, hopefully push those, uh, push those stories and we'll watch Socceroos with interest as we, uh, as we always do. And let's hope that uh, the, uh, the boys can, can go on a run right to the very pointy end of this, of this competition. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Good on you, boys. Keep up the good work. See ya. Former Socceroos skipper Paul Wade there. Stick around. On the other side of the break, Rob and Derek will be back to cover the big international news of the week with a former Red himself, Stephen Warnock. Gentlemen, it's only two weeks, or a little over two weeks, until Valentine's Day comes around. Uh, has anybody done their shopping? Oh, that's a, that's a, a big <laughs> no of silence. But if you can see what I've got in my hands here, this is the Chemist Warehouse. Uh, brochure that you can hear it, the, the sound effects in the background uh, that came in my letterbox. So I pulled it out and I thought I'm going to make some suggestions for you from this. Okay, so for the ladies, the Michael Buble Unforgettable, new and exclusive, 49.99 for 100 mils. Eau de toilette, outstanding. 
the Michael Bublé fragrance and Tommy Girl, always popular Tommy Girl, $69.99. That's $49 off the recommended retail price. And Oscar Delarenta, who can look past Oscar Delarenta for a classic fragrance, $59.99, 100ml. And for the gentleman, well, both of these sort categories could be for our uh, our non-binary listeners as well so you know we're sort of a broad church on box to box here uh boss the scent 50 mils 59.99 safe 63 bucks and geo aqua de geo i love it 149 save 110 off you won't buy that at that price in a big department store so get on down to chemist warehouse guys willem um you're not in australia edge neither are you uh derek mate you're my candidate. You'll be down there to the local Hillsville Sanctuary Chemist Warehouse to buy something for the beautiful Sarah. Yeah, well, it won't be Hillsville, Rob, but I'll be Lilydale is the nearest one, so I'll be I'll be down there and uh, shopping those fragrances for sure. Chemist Warehouse, great savings there every single day. Chemist Warehouse, why pay more? Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse, great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And as I said off the top of the show, one of the biggest shocks in football in recent times was last week's announcement that Jurgen Klopp would be walking away from his job as manager of Liverpool. He's uh, he's delivered everything and more than he could have uh, anticipated or the, the fans at uh, Anfield could have anticipated. I did compare him to Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger of the modern era and the greats, of course, of Liverpool, Tom Watson, Bob Paisley, Bill Shankly, Kenny Dalglish and Klopp alongside of them. So to talk about uh, his legacy and perhaps who might step into those shoes. It's great to uh, welcome a former Red himself uh, in his storied career and one of the top pundits in football around the world right now, Stephen Warnock. How are you? Good morning, Rob. How are you? Mate, uh, fantastic, Stephen, and uh, thanks so much for coming on to talk about uh, uh, both the Klopp legacy and and the consequences of the decision and where it goes to from here. Um, I had the, the fortune to, to travel to Liverpool in 2018 and uh, and and meet some behind the scenes people, uh, George Sefton, of course, the the renowned ground announcer, and to a man, every single one of them said that the thing about Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool was that he got the place, that he he returned Liverpool back to uh, the, uh, the the Merseysiders, and that uh, not only did he do that in a manager's way that um, that delivered success, but he he got the people of Liverpool uh, having a, a beer in a pub on his very first night. Is that one of the, the, the abiding legacies that we'll, we'll, we'll see with Klopp that not only delivers the silverware, but also that he got the club and delivered the club back to the people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when you, you think of where Liverpool were when he joined, uh, there was a disconnection between the club and the fans. I think there was... I think any game that you went to, you could pretty much get a, get a, get a ticket on the day um, because people were reluctant to go to the game because... They weren't impressed with the style of football and what was happening on the pitch. And when he came in straight away, you just felt he had an aura about him. Um, the first press conference, then people sort of seeing him in and around the city. He was engaging. He had time for them. Uh, he was going watching local kids football in the area where he lived. He'd sit in the pub, having a beer with his dog in the pub. Um, and people just got to know him and, and like him and understand him. I think from a, a point of view of whenever he spoke on pretty much on, on politics or on behalf of the city. He always got it right. Uh, you often very, very rarely disagreed with what he had to say. So I think that connection to the, the people uh, of the city was hugely important. A lot of Everton fans won't like to admit it, but they actually agreed with him. They liked him. They loved his style of football. 
uh, they couldn't help but like him, and that was very frustrating to the blue half of Merseyside. So he has he's bought that he's bought Liverpool the the, the fans back to the club uh, and reconnected them all, and it's been quite remarkable how he's gone about it. Um, but his people skills, his his skills of managing people are quite remarkable. Yeah, that um, that that is one of those things that um, that we we don't often appreciate enough. Uh, is it that uh, that we we see the acerbic side of, uh, of football managers, the, the the cutting remarks at press conferences when they lose, and and uh, and the uh, um, the the, the real, barely contain joy when they win, but uh, that we really mm. see the, the the human side in the same way that um, that that we saw with Klopp. So, I mean, talk to us about the. I mean, Obviously, won more trophies than any other club uh, in in the competition over the course of uh, of their time. But that breakthrough year, even though it was in COVID, um, that was uh, that was a collective exhaling of breath from the entire red side of Liverpool, wasn't it? it yeah, it really was, and it was the elusive trophy that they couldn't get hold of. Uh, they tried and being so close many times before, and managers like Brendan Rodgers, Rafa Benitez had tried and. Gerard Houllier, and they got close, but it was—it never felt like it was really in the grasp. When Jurgen came in, you think of where they were. I think they were eighth or ninth in the league um, when he came into the club. They hadn't had Champions League football for sort of four or five years, and then suddenly this style of football comes in, and you just had the belief that this could change things and this could win win the Premier League back. And I think that was. The, the big challenge for him coming in was if he could just win that trophy, he'd go down as a great at Anfield uh, and, and Liverpool fans around the world. But it was everything else that came with it. But you you look back on his time at Liverpool and I know he could still win another title. There's potential that with the points tallies that he got, he should have had two or three more titles, but for Manchester City and, and, and Guardiola. But that was also what pushed Klopp as well. That's what also drove him and Guardiola was that that rivalry, and it's such a shame that we're not going to see that anymore. But we've we've witnessed an incredible Liverpool team for the, for, the, for his time at the club in the last eight and a half years. Who've competed, who've been to nine cup finals, uh, three Champions League finals in eight and a half years it is is phenomenal. Uh, it was. It's the stuff only Liverpool fans could have dreamed of before he came into the football club. So to be able to change things around so much but get that all-elusive Premier League title, that is exactly what the Liverpool fans wanted. And, um, you know, reading a lot and listening to a lot of podcasts, um, one of the, the best articles that I, I came across was Martin Samuels in The Times where where he talked about um, the ability to, to convey his message to players. Uh, so he was obviously tactically astute. That was a given by the time he'd even arrived. His career was already a success. But to, as somebody who, who watches football at the top level uh, as close as anybody, how would you define, in layman's terms, how he got across to uh, his players his point um, uh, when it came to carrying out his instructions and, uh, as Samuels wrote in that article, to do so without limit? I think, I think there's two sides to it. I think what you've got to do is you've got to give the team um, tactics and, and a, a game plan. And when they pay off, and when you come in at half-time, he's able to change tactics, he's able to... to tinker with things at half time and then you go out and win the game in the second half you're continually doing that you go and this guy's not a fluke he's got 
He's got the ability to see things on the pitch. It's not just him, it's his staff as well. I think we have to admit that. Pep Linders has got a lot of say in what goes on as well. But you've got to surround yourself with the right people as well. And I think when you're constantly getting those messages and you're seeing the improvement, whenever you're going to a game, you're thinking, we've got the right man at the helm. We know if it's not quite going our way, he's got that ability to change it. But one of the interesting things I found in, in my time of sort of covering Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool was uh, my old sports psychologist at, when I was at Wigan was a guy called Lee Richardson and he worked within Liverpool uh, for a two-year period under Jurgen Klopp. And I spoke to him about him and I said, what's he like when you go and sit down with him? And he said, he's already streets ahead of me because he's got a, a degree in sports psychology and psychology. So he understands how to set things up for the future, how to speak to the players, uh, what what might what sort of card might be dealt next and what players are thinking. He's already a step ahead of them. So he's already dealt with the situation before it arises. And I thought that was quite brilliant because that's not an easy skill to manage a squad of 20, 25 players, different religions, different backgrounds and moving to different countries and understanding their cultures it's such a juggling act for him, but he, he he was so able to do that because of those skills. I think we often look at Jurgen Klopp and we see this enthusiastic uh, guy on the touchline, this emotional guy who sort of fist pumps and kicks every ball and we think, oh, that's the type of manager we want to play for. But there's another side to him, the side that is so clued into everything that's moving around him that he's so tuned into that and gets it. And that's a, a huge skill set that we often bypass. Stephen, the Premier League is looks like it's it's aged him considerably. We were looking at photos of the fresh-faced uh, man who came into the club and only less than a decade later, the worry lines are there, the hair's grey. Uh, and even by his own admittance, he, he has said that the club and the job has extracted everything out of him and he, and he can't. Uh, continue to, to to operate at that level. Can can you explain why you think that that might be the case? What is it about this Liverpool job that is just comes along with with so much pressure, demand, uh, and expectation? And then obviously, you know, the era that he's been in, where you know, as you said, you know, p- p- producing buckets of points every season and not ending with titles. What what has made that job so hard? I mean, the, the club's so well known, isn't it? I mean, it's it's under the microscope twenty four seven as that everything that goes on, and with his his own success so early on in the way that he transformed Liverpool, becomes a pressure to continue that success to keep that success going, uh, to be able to go into a transfer market against other clubs who've got more money, uh, keeping a, a structure that FSG have set in place and in how they want to do transfers, and you're trying to to make sure that you, every move that you make is a calculated move to get it right. So the the level of detail that has gone into his job, and, and don't get me wrong, it goes into every Premier League manager's job, but for him to compete at the top, he has to get things right more often than not, nine times out of ten. And that is a pressure that comes with it itself. And I just think eight and a half years to try and keep Liverpool at the top end of the league, fighting on, on all fronts and... Uh, more often than not, they've done that on probably two or three trophies a season where they're in it round about up until the semi-finals, if you like. That's a lot of pressure throughout the season. Um, and also as well, we expect him to behave in a certain way and act a certain way constantly. Uh, you're constantly getting looked at by 
the press, the media, whoever it might be, you're constantly on the TV. That comes with the stresses and strains as well. He's also now got a grandchild who he's away from. And you can see that side of him where he's he might just be looking at that thinking, I want to go on that side of things now. I want to enjoy my life. I've dedicated so much time um, to football. Because the other thing as well is that, yeah, he looked fresh and he looked young when he came to, to Liverpool. He is nine years older now, eight or nine years older. But he's only had a three-month break from his time at Mainz, then straight into the Borussia Dortmund job. He was actually on holiday on a skiing trip when he got the call about the Liverpool job that he cut short. So he's not really had a break from football as such. Uh, so I think the time probably is right for him to have that break and he's earned the right for that break because if you know you need a break and you think it's the ta- the right time, it is the right time. So um, yeah, he's, he's given everything to the football club and you can see why he would look a little bit, uh, a little bit older. He's uh, leaving behind not not just the, the the historic legacy, but he's obviously leaving behind the team uh, that he has assembled as well, Steve. And it did feel like the end of an era, was it a year or so ago, when the the striking pair uh, was uh, triumphant was broken up for Mino and uh, Mane moving on. Obviously, Jordan Henson uh, moving on as well. But um, far from being the end, it's the beginning. And uh, you know, whoever comes in. Uh, to this job, we'll, we'll thank Jurgen Klopp because you know they've got a brand new, have got a brand new team with uh, young, you know, young prospects and uh, completely rejigged midfield. Like, what's his, what's his legacy there in terms of what the next manager will take up? Yeah, it, it's a great thing to be going into a Liverpool hot seat where it's not in a position where it needs change and it needs altering. There's a lot of work behind the scenes need to. If you look at Liverpool as a club on a whole. They're in a fantastic position in the way that they've been run, the finances of the club. So you don't have that stress on your back straight away. I think the new manager will obviously have to come in and work under the conditions that FSG set out where the, the way the transfer policy works. Uh, they might have to buy at time, uh, sell at times to buy. Um, but this isn't a, a Liverpool team that's on the decline. It's on the incline. It's actually uh, looking back to its best. So... A manager who comes in depends what they they do this year. If they were to win the league, suddenly you're looking at it thinking you, you're under a little bit of pressure. If they don't win the league, then you you try and build and and set your own sort of put your own stamp on the team. But I think any manager coming in will be rubbing his hands, thinking this is a great challenge. But I think you've got to get a man who comes in who's got the sort of the. the the aura that Jürgen had, who's not afraid to to step in front of the press and and be bold with his predictions of what he thinks he can do, what he can achieve, but also someone who stands on the touchline and gives the belief to the players as well. Um, And I think that's going to be a big ask. Um, The candidates out there are probably a little bit limited at the moment, but my due diligence as a club, I think that's the one thing I would not be overly worried about is that this isn't a surprise to Liverpool. They would have been planning for this two, three years ago because you just never know what's going to happen in football. If they didn't plan for it, that's not running a a business well. But I know what they're like, the owners. They're very astute in the way that they they do the business. So they'll have looked at this already and had someone in mind and and looked to get that sewn up pretty quickly, I would have thought. And the the press and uh, people in the know have been quick to put uh, Xabi Alonso at the, uh, the head of the queue, Steve, and of course you, you played with him. Uh, he was a, a fantastic 
player in his in his own right in uh, in his in his Liverpool days amongst the other the other clubs he played for. Uh, could you maybe let us know if you think that someone like him with with the history of the club, uh, his kind of personality and obviously the pedigree and the body of work he's building in Germany right now. What, what are your reflections on Xavi Alonso, the man, and, and could he be the man to take Liverpool to the next level? Yeah, I think well, one thing about Xavi is he's he's not afraid and he's not he's very confident. You don't play for clubs like Liverpool, Bayern Munich, and Real Madrid and not be confident in your own ability. I think the managers that he's played under, if he can take a a little bit of what he's learned along the way. It's then how do you put that into your own training sessions? How do you put your style across to the management? Uh, for those who don't know, he's joined by Leverkusen, who was second to uh, second from bottom in the Bundesliga. He took them into a Europa League position straight away in his first year. And now he's top of the table without a defeat in, uh, in all competitions and uh, above Bayern Munich. So that tells you what he's doing from a, a manager's point of view. There is a different pressure of managing Liverpool than there is from Bayer Leverkusen. There's no doubt about that. There is uh, a worldwide microscope on on the Liverpool team, and he has got the personality to do that. He is. Um, he's very charismatic. He might not be as emotional as Jurgen on the touchline, but he will be uh, very personable with people. He's got a nice. Per- he's got a great personality, a great way about him, um, and I think he's. He's the type of person who is able to switch off. I think when you when you know him and you understand what he's like, he's the type of person who can step away from football a little bit, spend the time with his family. He is able to shut off. But will he be able to do that at Liverpool with the, with everything that goes on? Who knows? Uh, he is uh, he's doing an incredible job. Is it too early? I think that's the question some people are asking. Um, but I think. His ambition is to be a Liverpool manager. He's spoken about that in the past. And this opportunity might not, not might not come up again. It might just be the time and right for him. But only he knows that. Mm, yeah, just like it was for Klopp when he was in the middle of that holiday that you spoke of. I mean, we'll let you go, Stephen. Uh, five points clear of Manchester City. You've got a game in hand. Uh, the Premier League resumes with the midweek round. Uh, they've got Chelsea at home. Uh, the uh, atmosphere at that match would be just incredible to behold uh, the week, uh, the first home game after the announcement. Uh, just what would it mean for him to to uh, to win the trophy in front of a home, a packed Anfield, uh, to to put the full stop on to on on his time at uh, at Liverpool? Yeah, I, I think that's what he's desperate for. I think that would be the one because uh, I was one of the very fortunate few who was at Anfield when they they lifted the trophy and they. Uh, in the pandemic, and it it was just an experience where you're looking around thinking, I, I feel so sorry for the the players and the management and the staff because they're not getting to share this, they're not getting to to share it uh, with the city, which they they do the parades and the parades are just phenomenal. Uh, so there'll be an element where he'll be looking at that, thinking, I want to share this with the city, I want to go out on the biggest high possible. Um, and you could see from the performance in the FA Cup against Norwich is that they're they're. The crowd are right behind the team. It will spur them on. It will give them that extra added push that they might need. Um, but there's one other problem with all of this. There's a team called Manchester City, and you just know at some point they're going to they're going to go on a run. Um, they're capable of going on a, an incredible run with an incredible manager and an incredible set of players as well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's going to be incredible. What a what a, an end to the season we've got, and a few other uh, teams, uh, not the least of which is Arsenal, and uh, to a lesser extent, even Spurs nipping at their heels. Stephen, we've taken plenty of your time. Thank you so much. We couldn't have had uh, a, a better voice to reflect on uh, Jurgen Klopp's career at Anfield and to, to look ahead to the future. Um, it'll go on. The the, the football uh, show does roll on, but uh, it'll be without Jurgen Klopp um, at Merseyside in future. Thanks again for for joining us, mate. No, thanks for having me on. Great to see you again. Stephen Warnock, one of the top pundits in football and an uh, incredible player in his own right. Okay, stick around. World Cup Corner with uh, a real close look at AFCON next on Box to Box. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt's Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt's Spices, yeah. Oh, we're always talking about flavour-packed meals. Now, put your hand up if you love lamb cutlets. Oh, I love yeah, hand hand up. All, all hand the hands. Up. Absolutely, yeah. all the hands. Up. Now, I want you to make this meal. It's the easiest thing you can possibly make. So get online and find a recipe for the Lebanese salad for tush. I love it. The key to it is the lemon juice, the olive oil, and the crushed garlic with salt for, for your dressing. Uh, but get the lamb cutlets and make a rub of the Lebanese Raz El Hanout, or as you'll find when you go to your Coles, Woolworths, or Good Independent Supermarket, it's just called Mixed Spices. Cinnamon, allspice, and nutmeg. Rub it on the lamb cutlets with a little olive oil and barbecue them, but just don't barbecue them too much. You need to get them off in time so they can stay nice and moist and juicy. You want to make about 10 more than you plan to eat because you're going to absolutely gobble them up like meat lollipops. They are delicious, Edge. Well, I lamb's pretty expensive, Bangkok, so I, I save up my cravings for lamb when I come home. So, well, I, uh, Mate, if you're ever not in, in uh, travelling around Australia, I'm going to eventually have you over that barbecue and I will... I'll tell you time. what, I, I'd inhale about 15 of those, I reckon. All right, well, we better go. Hoyt's value packs are available at Hoyt's. It, they're available to Hoyts, of course, at Coles, Woolworths, <laughs> and all good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyts and spices, yeah! Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyts, Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, World Cup corner time. A couple of great chats there. Uh, if you're a football fan, it's always great to listen to to Paul Wade and uh, and his analysis of the Asian Cup. And, of course, Stephen Walnock uh, uh, reflecting on uh, Jurgen Klopp's time at, at Anfield as, as it begins to wrap up. But, you know, how to pack in everything that's going on in football right now is, is all but impossible. But uh, the AFCON, I mean, in other shows that it just lead and we do an entire episode on it there's been some brilliant games willem um and uh, and as we we work by, by this time next week the the first knockout phase will be done it will indeed i want to start with what's been my favorite story of the year uh robert it involves one of my favorite managers the ivory coast have had their request to loan french women's manager hervé renard uh, for the rest of AFCON rebuffed, uh, having sacked Jean-Louis Gasset only to then advance to the round of 16. Uh, the Elephants lost their final Group E game to Equatorial Guinea 4-0. That's the heaviest defeat of a host nation in AFCON history, and that looked like curtains, uh, except for the fact that their paltry tally of three points and a goal difference of minus three was enough, Derek, to scrape the fourth and final third-placed slot. Uh, Renard led uh, the side to the AFCON title in 2015 and had been in the stands as a guest of the local government. Uh, and he was reportedly up for it, but his current employers said uh, no siree. So they're going to be led by uh, Emerze Faye. 
uh, against Senegal and maybe beyond. So that's a cracker, Derek. Nothing like a bit of freelance work with a former employee when you're in town. Yeah, I, I, I don't recall too many managers, be, managers being sacked in the middle of a tournament. That's a, a new a new one for me. But they obviously just felt that, you know, it's not just the performance, it's their national prestige uh, as well was, was under threat. And as you said, they, they, you know, they squeaked in barely deserved to get through and they felt that they were better with a, a new person in charge. It would have been lovely to see uh, Renard's, you know, bronzed demeanour, his, his good looks and his shirts, open necked white shirt would have would have been sensational to get Perfect that to hair. work on. Oh, yeah. You can, you can tell. We all, I think we all have a crush Strong on this man. Line. Yeah. Oh, man. He's so good, isn't he? But, yeah, he, he um, yeah, yeah, he's, 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 Unlucky not to not to be uh, you know, to getting the gig. Uh, maybe they could employ Chris Uton because he's oh, just wow. been mm. sacked by uh, Ghana. And Ghana, obviously, one of the things that didn't get through. They had a pretty miserable uh, Afcon as well, and his job was under threat leading into the the role. He, he hasn't had the best time there. It was always an interesting fit, Chris Uton and uh, and Ghana, and unfortunately, this hasn't hasn't come to pass that one. You've knocked some of my pins over, Derek. Um, I want to have a look at that. Uh, how he that doesn't group... usually do that. That's usually no, main no. Edge. That's usually uh, yes. Anyway, we'll, we'll throw to Edge here. The end of Group B was brilliant. Cape Verde, the Blue Sharks. You've adopted them, Derek. Egypt, Ghana, and Mozambique. Ninety minutes into this, um, into this final group stage uh, day, with the games being played at the same time, it was Ghana two, Mozambique nil. And Cape Verde won Egypt one. So the Egyptians were going home based on their points tally of two. Uh, they then scored the winner, so they were through, but then conceded again. So two all all seemed to go on edge, except for the fact that Ghana coughed up two goals to Mozambique in the 91st and 94th minute to show themselves out instead. That is a real uh, real bungle job from the Black Stars. Oh, our mate Samuel. Uh, Sammy. Samuel Goggy Mensa. Yeah, Samuel Goggy Mensa. He's probably listening to us. He's... I hope you're okay, Sammy, and you haven't um, jumped off a building because uh, it's just was just chaos and drama. Like, like it's just unpredictable. You couldn't write if you wrote the script that way, people wouldn't believe you. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. And some of these big nations, like you know, football superpowers, even Nigeria's had a tough time. You know, it's a it's a fascinating tournament, and anything's possible in any day. So as we record, four sides have advanced to the final eight. We've got Angola. They're through for the first time since 2010, and they've scored three goals three times, so they're flying. Nigeria, who are having a tough time, but they're warming up, and their coach has come out and praised Victor Oshimen and said that he is, despite not scoring, he's setting him up, and they're liking his work. Guinea are through, and as are the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rob, who are, have beaten Egypt, so despite Egypt getting through uh, the group stage, they, uh, they then went to penalties and it was the two goalkeepers who had to take the spot kicks and this decided things. So it was Egypt's Gabaski uh, who's hit the crossbar and then Lionel Mpasi uh, stepped up to slot his for uh, for DR Congo. Yeah, well, if you haven't watched the highlights, uh, even though, they, as, Ed, as Derek did point out a couple of weeks ago, our friends at BN Sports do like to extend their highlight packages over about sort of nine to, to, to 15 minutes. But w- watch that match and that 8-7 um, that 
result for the Democratic Republic of Congo over Egypt, a most salahless Egypt, and a ten-man Egypt, by the way. Uh, um, even though the, um, the you know they, they did play deep into stoppage time before that red card. The, the other game that you just mentioned and, and, and went past pretty quickly was the, the Equatorial Guinea Guinea match. So Equatorial Guinea, uh, let's not forget they finished top of their group and and were flying. They must have been uh, like incredibly confident. And let's uh, they were in the group with Nigeria and Ivory Coast. Meanwhile, Guinea were one of the lucky third-place teams, Group C, behind Senegal and Cameroon. And as football will do, it delivers it to you. Um, Equatorial Guinea have a player sent off, Federico Bacoro, 55 minutes in, and uh, and they hold on until eight minutes into stoppage time before they, they concede uh, to Guinea uh, and uh, and the match winner, courtesy of... Um, of Mohamed Bayer. So, uh, yeah, it's just been a fantastic AFCON so far. And the, as we say, by the time we get to next week, have, have you got a, a few more little highlights before we wrap it up, Will? I just want to touch on the managers, Rob. It's a hot cycle in African football with, you know, twice as many AFCONs as any other continental tournament. So Chris Hutton with Ghana, sacked. Tom St. Fay with the Gambia, resigned within minutes. Jamel Belmadi with Algeria, resigned. Jalal Kadri with Tunisia, sacked. Jean-Louis Gasset with the Ivory Coast, sacked. Rui Vittoria of Egypt, off the back of four draws and seven goals conceded edge. It's not the time for hasty decisions. Fair play. I think he might still be, uh, might still be Gonski. Oh, the Egyptian people I know, and I know quite a few, uh, obviously, with my work in the Middle East, they are spewing. They expected to go uh, really deep in that tournament, and they want his head. They do. Ed, do you want to close with a word on the 2026 World Cup? Absolutely. On the 4th of February, FIFA is going to unveil the 2026 World Cup match schedule, including host city match allocation for all 104 fixtures, locations of key matches, um, including the final, which is designated for Sunday the 19th of July 2026, including the opening match in Canada, Mexico and USA, uh, group, stage lo- group stage locations for each of the host nation's national teams. So it's a big day on 4th of February. We'll learn a lot more in terms of uh, and whether there's sort of hubs that teams will be sort of centred in and around. Just uh, to uh, remind everybody who's listening, the host cities for the 2026 FIFA World Cup uh, across Canada, Mexico and the USA are Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Guadalajara, Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Mexico City, Miami, Monterey, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, Toronto and Vancouver. Well, can you just give us a Guadalajara, please? Guadalajara. No, no, that's not nice. You are no. most unfair to me. Yeah, well, no one picked him up on his Nathaniel earlier on. I'm sure some of our eager, eager listeners... Are... I did pick him up on his Alex Robertson a couple of weeks ago, Rob. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't. Uh, my mother's name's Robertson. Don't stop that. Yeah, she'll fair give enough. me another fair phone enough. call and say, stand up for her Scottish heritage. That's what she'll do. Yes, of course, I know your mum must You don't want to make an old Scottish lady upset too. <laughs> well, mate, if you, if, uh, if you uh, got your, um, your uh, temperament from that old Scottish lady edge, I wouldn't want to get her upset. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well done, boys. Now, before we go, um, we should have led the the show with this, but to Adam Maloney, who is you know just world's best producer and uh, and makes sure this show, particularly when we have a few little bumps along the way uh, that our listeners never get to listen to, we want to welcome to the world his brand new a few bumps. Son. You reckon it's only a few bumps? Ah, oh, we get a couple of them along the way. Jackson Luke Maloney, um, I love the photo that you sent to us. Um, I'm sure Edge and Derek liked it even more. Derek, what did you say? Uh, what a way to enter the world with a couple of uh, Arsenal scarfs draped over 
over that beautiful little cot. Oh, just perfect. I mean, you're setting the tone right from the start, aren't you? So uh, look forward to seeing all the little Arsenal uh, suits and other things that uh, Jackson will be getting in the future. Excellent. And um, and named after. Well, um, let's give us a thumbs up or thumbs down. Did you just like the name or, or is there a little hint that uh, the uh, the captain, yes, of the national side, Jackson, uh, owes a bit to that uh, that baby uh, name? Well, well done, mate. From all of the boys and all of our listeners, uh, we're fabulous news, little brother for Charlotte. And uh, and welcome to, welcome to the world, uh, uh, Jackson Luke Maloney. Now, we've come to the end of the show. Um, please make sure. Uh, you subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time and Offside wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box and follow us on X. Like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.